Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by YCharts. One of the reasons I love using YCharts is because it makes my life easier. So I did a post over the weekend about the number of stocks that outperform. And I wanted to put the little shaded regions in for when there was a recession to see if the number of stocks that outperformed during a recession actually increased. And surprisingly, it did in five out of the last six recessions. But creating those Excel spreadsheet charts is difficult. And so every time I have to put the recession chart, the recession shaded regions in, I have to go look up that blog post from Bill McBride to do it. And on Y charts, every time I have to do it, I forget. And it takes me like a half hour to figure it out. And Y charts actually allows you to simply hit a button and they show the shaded regions of the recession. And I did that in some of the charts we're going to use today. So that's one of the reasons I love Y charts because it makes my life easier as a blogger and it makes it easier to do research. So go to ycharts.com. If you reach out to them as a new subscriber, you get 20% off by saying that you came from Animal Spirits. Just mention Animal Spirits when you call them. And again, ycharts.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. So we're going to spend just a, a minute or two on the yield curve because I know you're probably already sick of hearing about it. But What percentage of the population do you think knows what the yield curve is? Well, it's funny. It was actually on the ABC World Nightly News or Nightly World News. <laughs> Seriously? So it, that's, like the main, that's like the mainest stream. For people 60 and older. Yeah. So I, I wasn't listening. But Charlie Bolello tweeted over the weekend that the average Fed funds rate of the previous, I guess this looks like eight or nine inversions, the average yield was 6.15%. Today, we're at 2.4%. So I guess what typically has happened is that the Fed hiked to maybe ward off any potential inflation when the economy was overheating and sent the economy tumbling into a recession. And that is not the environment we find ourselves in today. Right. If you So I actually pulled up a chart from YCharts, and it goes back to the mid-1970s, and I plotted the effective federal funds rate, which is their short-term interest rate they set, and the 10-year, two-year treasury spread, which is the one people look at. It is kind of funny because some people are, are now looking at different interest rates to try to prove that the yield curve has inverted. Anyway, this one shows, as of Friday, 13 basis points for the spread. So hasn't quite inverted yet, I guess, pretty darn close. But the Fed funds rate was so high in the 80s and 90s trying to compare that period or the 70s to now, even the, the mid-2000s, it's impossible. So the Fed was coming off of zero. Now it's at 24 2.5% or whatever it is. I, I don't know how you can compare that. Mark Dow gave the analogy of like, maybe not with the yield curve, but if we were to go into a recession because growth has been so tepid, that would, it would be like jumping out of the, out of the first floor window. Right. You can't kill yourself jumping off of a one step or something like that. I mean, the crazy part is it was at in 2010, 2011, the spread between 10-year and two-year treasuries was like 3%. And the fact that it's compressed that far is pretty crazy because obviously it means somehow the bond market is arguing with the Fed because the Fed is raising short-term rates. The long end of the curve is not responding basically at all. 
And so this is putting to a test our theory about the bond market being smarter than the stock market. It's kind of like, who's wrong, the Fed or the bond market? Ooh. Well, so there was actually a great tweet this week. Somebody said, I've been wrong on stocks for nine years because the Fed doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> right. But they're still behind the eight ball. And I mean, that, that, that's, that's the thing. It's easy to blame the Fed. And so I've made this point before. Whatever happens, the Fed is going to get blamed. So if the Fed keeps raising short-term rates and we go into a minor recession, people are going to blame them for pumping the brakes way too fast. If somehow things overheated and we had a recession down the line that was even worse, people would say, well, the Fed is just blowing bubbles again. So there's no way they can win. Imagine they, they backed off and, and dropped rates or lowered rates. Yeah, that, that would be... The, that would be a uh, how, how much would stocks go up if that happened? Yeah. Would we get a 2 or 3%? I mean, obviously, the history of the yield curve inverting, which again, basically means for those people who don't know, the short-term, short-duration bonds are yielding more than long-duration bonds, which in the risk-reward spectrum is not a good thing because you'd expect to be compensated more for taking a longer time horizon. All else equal. Then there's also like direct effects. If banks borrow short and lend long, they're going to be less likely to make loans. I know that's a theory that gets floated around. Is there any data on that? Is that actually true or is that just something people say? No, I mean, it, it, it obviously makes sense, but who knows because yes, but banks will still figure out ways to make money. I would like to see some data to corroborate that theory. Okay, I'll leave that up to you to find that. So, but I mean, the so here, so going back to the 70s, from the start of the yield curve inversion to the start of like a market correction, there's typically a lag time. Unfortunately, three out of the five times it's happened, there's been a kind of a long lag. So it was 19 months in 1980, 20 months in 88, and 23 months in 2005 when it happened. But in September of 1980, it was three months. And in February of 2000, it was two months. And in every one of those instances, the stock market fell double digits. A couple times it was in the teens. One time it was close to 30%. The other last two times, obviously, it was chopped in half. The problem is no one knows when these things will happen, whether it leads to a recession or a bear market. But Well, also another thing that we've said previously with data like this is back in the day, like they didn't know that this meant a recession was coming. So does right. the availability of the data make it less likely to hold going forward? Obviously, don't know. I don't really have a strong opinion, but let's move off this because it's enough. Yeah. My takeaway is another small sample size thing where it sounds great because it always happens, but that's the kind of thing that markets like love to challenge. So who knows? All right. So there is a lot of talk about... And you know what? I don't really like the generational broad brush arguments like boomers suck, millennials suck, whatever, whatever. But let's hold my feelings to the side for a second because we're going we're gonna to do just that. So there is a lot of talk how millennials are going to foot the bill or young people are going to foot the bill. Is it, it's foot the bill, not fit the bill, right? Foot the bill, yes. What does that mean? The Foot actual the origin of it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, so young people are going to be taking care of their, their, their parents in retirement. They're going to be living longer. Their retirement situation is not great. Well, maybe that's true. Probably true. But that's in exchange for parents taking care of us our entire lives and parents continuing to offer their adult children support. So this is the cover story of Barron's. Nearly 80% of parents give some financial support to their adult children to the tune of $500 billion a year, according to S. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, that's twice what parents put into retirement accounts. So they're not putting as much into retirement accounts because they're still taking care of us. So it's our responsibility to take care of them in the future. Does that sound fair? Foot the bill, 
dates back to the early 1800s because foot can mean the bottom of something, such as the bottom of a mountain. In this idiom, it refers to the bottom of a column of prices on a bill. So originally, footing the bill meant to add up the prices of different items on a bill and find the total cost. So it's something that's at the top of the bill or the, bo- the bottom of the bill. I don't know. It still doesn't make any sense, but it's something people say. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a new will move on your part because we've already actually talked about this survey before in the past, but I guess it is worth bringing it back up again. And when did we talk about this? It must have been two months ago, so I guess that's fine. Totally out of your... We've, we've mentioned this survey in the past, and it's a, cr- it's a crazy stat. So the fact that it's twice... The, people are... The parents are giving their money twice the amount that they're putting into retirement accounts. Maybe that is skewed by the fact that we talked about inheritances before, that the most inheritances come from people with a lot of money. And so maybe that money transfer is coming from the hands of a few, and that's why it kind of skews the averages. But I I don't think boomers can plan on having their kids help them out financially. I, th- that seems like a, uh, like a stretch to me, especially with the way young people complain about not having any money these days and housing being too unaffordable. So are you saying that everyone is screwed? Is that the point? Well, maybe they are, Ben. Moving on. So Daniel Kahneman, author of Thinking Fast and Slow, was on a podcast with Sam Harris two weeks ago, maybe. And you have something of a hot take? Kind of. I've just, I mean, that is the Bible for people on behavioral psychology, right? I mean, how many times do you listen to a podcast and you say, hey, what are your favorite books that have influenced you? I mean, four out of five times, it's thinking fast and slow, right? The thing about Kahneman, if you, if you listen to him enough and read him enough, and what, what percentage of people do you think actually finished the book? Because it is a little drier than most people assume. I did not finish it. I mean, it's I thought I thought it got really pages. I honestly it got read really cover hard to cover on that one, and it's probably one of the most highlighted books I've ever read. But it took a long time because it is it, it's a lot of research, and I mean, obviously, you can pull out the best stuff, and that's what a lot of people did. But so, anytime you listen to Kahneman speak, and it, it seems like from different podcasts and speeches I've heard of his, he doesn't ever really offer prescriptions, and I think maybe he does that on purpose because he's very humble and aware. He's, and he said in this, in this talk with Sam Harris, he said, I've been studying this stuff for 50 years and I still don't think that my, my intuitions have really improved significantly. And so I think the systems one and the systems two stuff is, is pretty groundbreaking, obviously, when it came out and, and, it's, and it's hard to read a book about investing or decision-making without having that come up these days. Is there a point coming? Yes. I mean, don't you think that because Kahneman doesn't really offer many prescriptions, someone like Robert Cialdini and influence is maybe better suited for most people because it actually offers stuff that they can do to overcome this. I mean, obviously, the best part about Kahneman's work maybe is putting a mirror up to our faces and showing that you know, yes, you are irrational. But he he, I think he does this on purpose. He doesn't really offer any ways to combat that, and I think that's kind of something that Cialdini does in influence. Okay, well, Robert Cialdini also has like a a training course. So maybe Kahneman didn't sell out, and I'm not calling Cialdini a sellout, but... I'm saying if you read Influence, it actually it not just shows people, yes, people are rational, but it shows here's how you can take advantage of that. And maybe it's not always in the, the best ways because a lot of it is like sales stuff, but he wrote that book in the 80s, and I feel like maybe that's one of the reasons that book has stuck around so long because it actually shows people how like the, the theory of reciprocity and these things that... like How people can actually use those things to advance themselves. Okay, so Cialdini so is definitely more prescriptive. But I think that Kahneman's point is that these behavioral things maybe just can't be conquered. 
and he's seen a lot more than we have. So maybe he's just jaded is not the wrong word, but skeptical for, for good reason. I saw Kahneman speak and somebody asked him, why didn't you call? So you, you call them heuristics. Why not like rules of thumb? And he said, because heuristics, like they just happen where rules of thumb, it almost makes it sound too clean that you're consciously making a decision. Whereas with these heuristics that he talks about, you don't even know what's happening. So I think I fall more in his camp being skeptical that we can overcome our behavior because it's like in the fabric of our DNA. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a cynical way to look at it, I guess. But I, I mean, maybe the point is just that once you know it, hopefully you can try to design some sort of processes and decision-making tools to just avoid having those things come into play altogether. Well, I think that there's there's probably a good middle ground between the two of them. You know what was the first behavioral book that I read, actually? was Dan Ariely's book, Predictably Irrational. Ah, uh, yes. He's very good, too. I, and I think I like he has another stuff. one. He has another one out recently that I saw on the bookshelf recently that I haven't read, but I want to. One of my favorite Kahneman quotes, actually, is he said in a talk once, I'm, they asked him about his own financial advisor because he said he does have one. And he said that he's intimidated by his financial advisor because he knows how little I know. So, uh, again, I, I think it is maybe studying this stuff for so long has just made him so humble and aware that it's hard to change and that a lot of other people can't do it either that he just never wanted to offer that. Here's the 10 steps to living a great life and here's all your life hacks and just get up at 3.30 in the morning and you'll overcome everything. Maybe he just didn't ever want to do that because he he knows most people, it won't work for them. Well, I think that... Well, so Thaler has definitely offered up solutions, but I think that Kahneman, like again, because people are predictably irrational, that you that it's so easy to fool them based on framing and other things that like... Maybe all hope is lost. Maybe not. I don't know. But let's let's stick with this behavioral thing and talk about the piece that you wrote on, on IPOs. This was interesting. So I put out a just a random tweet saying, I, I noticed Levi's came out with an IPO last week. And every time you see an IPO, it always says it's oversubscribed. And this one, according to CNBC, was 10 times oversubscribed. And I put out just a pithy tweet about it saying, the historical research shows IPOs tend to underperform. So why are all IPOs oversubscribed? And some people sent me some good data on it. And actually... There's a reason for it because the majority of the returns from IPOs come the first day. So if you can actually take an IPO and get in and get some shares and then flip it after that first day, you're probably actually doing okay. And then then it kind of goes on to underperform from there. So they actually found... I, I found some data from a professor, Jay Ritter, who is at the University of Florida and he's an expert on IPOs. And he has this really cool... I'll put a link into the show notes. He has this really cool update he does of his data, I think on an annual basis. And he found that he he broke them down into categories and it was basically 7% of them had a first day return of more than 60% and 36% of them had a return of 10 to 60% in the first days. And so almost 70% had positive returns, which makes sense that these investment banks would want to see positive returns to show their clients that they actually did something for them, even though people always say that they left money on the table or whatever. So there is something to this IPO thing. The reason that people want to get in them so bad is because they want to see that first day pop. But how many people actually take that first day pop and turn around and sell it? I would guess that's more professionals than individuals, but I don't want anything to back that up on. Yeah. I think this is the case of conflating time horizons. Right. Right. Like you, cause, cause your initial reaction is, well, if these returns are so bad, why do people still clamor to get in them? Right. And and obviously people want to hit that lottery ticket and and one of the reasons for that I think is 
the 2000s, so I, in the 90s, because I put that in there, and it shows the average first-day return in the 1998, 1999, 2000 was like 50, 60, 70%, the average first-day return. Yeah, that's crazy. But, which is insane. But, don't, but I think that this, speaking about the behavioral stuff, I think this could backfire because let's say that you do get in pre-IPO and it pops 30%. Do you think that you're then going like, to take your winnings? You're going right. like, to say, no, this is so easy. I can't sell now. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So even if you get that first day pop, it might not help you as much as you think. Apple just announced that there's a credit card. They're doing a credit card. It's 2% cash back and 3% cash back for buying Apple products. Really? So it's almost like the Amazon one. I actually just got denied for a credit card. Ouch. Right? Which, which one? All right. So I tried to do the Barclays World Travel one. And you actually put me onto this. Thank you very much. Because I just bought a house and I'm going to be basically furnishing the whole thing because I don't have furniture. You said you might as well get points. So I got a Capital One card, which is great. It gives you $500 back if you spend 3000 So I got one for myself and one for my wife. And then I got a Hyatt card because I don't have like a hotel card. And I got another card for the bonus sign-up points. And I wasn't even thinking about this, but I got denied from Barclays because I was opening too many cards. Yeah. They probably assumed you were doing some fraudulent activity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So they don't yeah. check don't check your credit report for a while because that that actually is kind of a ding on your credit report too. The, oh really? Oh great. I mean for for a short period, but you've already got a mortgage, so it doesn't really matter. Well, yeah. So they yeah, I was found guilty of colluding with with credit cards. So you're saying you you're not gonna be able to buy the open the Apple credit card? Is that what you're trying to say here? I'm not even gonna try. Okay, that's not that's not a bad deal. What's that? I like the Amazon one because you get five percent back for everything you spend on the Amazon card. I don't use my Amazon card for anything other than Amazon. No, either. And the one that I have is the one that is just for spending at Amazon. It's not even, I don't even actually have a physical card. It's just in the cloud. That was a funny little visual. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There was an article. Was this, who wrote this? Was it Tyler Cowen? Yes. Is real estate a better investment than stocks? No. But they said that they constructed a new database going back to 1870, and I'm very skeptical of data from the 1870s. I was not a fan of the conclusions of Cohen's article here. It's basically saying, this this would be like saying the returns of stocks have outperformed name and asset class, so you should buy this one single stock. Because that's effectively what this is saying, because this is showing the returns of a diversified stream of houses, and it's saying, so you should buy a house, which of course is not going to give you the same whether that date is good or not. Here's the thing I don't get. When do we get a rebuttal from Schiller on this? Because this is a yeah. Schiller's data that goes back to 1871. He said like, that it was, it was inflation, right? Barely? Well, well, this these are real returns, aren't they? Because this this new database, I don't, oh. know, I don't know what their difference is. It's showing that they outperform stocks, but Schiller's shows that stocks outperform real estate by 6 or 7%. So one of the reasons for this, I, I believe, is because trying to... Calculate the returns on a house is so hard to do. Like, if you're, do you take into account leverage and all the other costs involved? Are you just using price points? I just, I don't think there's an easy way to ever, and then you talk about the imputed rent involved. I don't think yeah. there's an easy way to figure out the, the cost. And then the funnier thing about this one was to me, it was saying that the standard deviation of housing returns is less than half of that for equities, which is dumb because they don't trade that often. No, it doesn't trade on a daily basis and it's not liquid. So I just don't like making comparisons ever from stocks to the real estate market. It doesn't make any sense. I've I, I probably done it in the past. So if someone wants to dunk on me, that's fine. But it, I just, 
it's too hard to do, I think. There's too many variables when trying to calculate real estate returns. And I just, my whole thing is some way or another, unless you're investing in rental properties or like commercial real estate, if you're owning a home, it's a form of consumption. So it's not an investment. It's a form of consumption. If you make money on that, that's that's all gravy as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's a liability and an asset. Uh, so yes. actually, somebody asked us, like, can we talk about renting versus buying? And I think this is so situational dependent, state dependent, and then obviously location and taxes. And, and there's a million things to consider. Um, but maybe if you are a rich person and you can invest in real estate deals or just buy rental properties, you can do well because there's obviously a lot of leverage involved. But the idea that you should like buy a house instead of stocks, I don't get that. Yeah. It's, and obviously, the, the other big part of it is where are you at in your life cycle? How much flexibility do you need? And that's why I think young people complain a lot about not being able to buy a home. And I, and I think it's going to come back to bite a lot of people because that is something that it, it probably just for that psychic income people need. But keeping that flexibility available as a young person is is something that is tough to put a price on too, even if that means you're having to buy a more expensive home later. All right. So the majority of Bitcoin trading is a hoax. New study finds. That was an article from Bitwise. Did you see over the weekend, actually, there was an article that Jeffrey Skilling of Enron is getting out of jail and he was seen talking to crypto people? Oh, boy. Really? That sounds about right. How is it possible that this went from the only thing anyone was talking about to no one is talking about it anymore? Well, an 80% decline will do that or whatever it was. So Matthew Hogan, who is the head of research at Bitwise, basically said that they looked at the data and the market was manipulated. And so he said, when you cut away the echo chamber of these nonsense numbers, it should be an efficient, well-arbitraged market. And unfortunately, it sounds like a lot of it was just people trading to prop up the volume to show that it's a more mature market. And couldn't you almost say the same thing about the stock market, though? I'm not trying to defend what? these markets because because this is still so, so in its infancy, but don't doesn't high-frequency trading prop up the volume on stock markets? Like, Couldn't you say, well, that's just a hoax, too, because that's not actual trading among investors? Like, uh, could, could, no, giving I don't them the think be- so. Good, giving them the benefit of the doubt here. Couldn't you okay. say something similar? Well, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt here. So Jay Clayton, head of the SEC, said, what investors expect is that trading in the commodity that underlies that ETF makes sense and is free from the risk of manipulation. Well, can't you say that the PPT is manipulating the stock market every day? Boom. Nailed uh, it. But the, the other point is, it is sort of funny that there can't be a Bitcoin ETF, but there could be like three-time levered ETFs. So- Like what's more dangerous to the average investor? That's true. What happens, like what if volume got so low that they had to- take away the Bitcoin futures. I don't know. I'm not saying that's happening, but is there any... Like, Remember, people were saying all Bitcoin needs is an ETF and then this thing is going mainstream. Like, What's the other hand where something bad happens and then it just continues to go... To, I mean, it, that's one of the cra- craziest things is the fact that if all this volume was a hoax, they've managed to keep things pretty well stabilized in that three to $4,000 range for the price of Bitcoin for the last... Seems like nine to 12 months, I guess. But is there something that comes out that this thing has a huge, huge leg lower and then people kind of, it just goes away for, for a long time? I don't, I mean. I don't know. But you know what really chaps my ass? What's that? You know, when you're in traffic and yeah. you let somebody go in front of you, like they have their signal on, 
and you stop even though you don't necessarily need to, but it's a courteous thing to do. And then you wave them on, you let them go, and they don't reciprocate the wave. Oh, yeah. That's just being a decent human being. Is that like the worst thing ever? That's pretty bad. Yeah. If you're, if you're going to give someone the nice, you, you at least want the head nod or the wave. You know what, it you're drives me to get, bonkers. I don't know how, what your neighborhood is like now that you're living in the suburbs, but here's something else you have to get used to. The, the fake wave to your neighbors. Oh. That's the worst. So I get Ugh. yelled at by my wife because I don't give the fake wave enough. Sometimes I'll forget or I'll be dealing with kids or something and I forget to give the fake wave to the neighbors. And uh, that's just something you have to do. You know the hand on the steering wheel with just a few fingers up? Yes. That's all, so, yeah, but when you're in a car, that's all it takes. So speaking of suburban life, on Thursday night, I went to see Us. Okay. And I left the movie feeling very confused. Like I had no read on it. I... If, like, I feel like the first article I read, I could be convinced that it was either brilliant or horrible. And I think one of the things that really happened was that I was in a theater with like six other couples and they were all over the age of 60, which was very bizarre. It's kind of surprising for that movie. Yeah, right? So I was like, am I, am I in the wrong place? But anyway, it was such an um, underwhelming experience in the sense that there were so many empty seats. But I feel like if I saw it in a crowded theater, I would have had a very different experience. But the first read of the movie is that the critics liked it way more than the audience. And I think, I think I get it. Like, I think the movie was trying to say something, blah, 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 real artsy. That's never a good sign for me, that I'm going to like the movie. If the critics like it more than the audience, I'm usually more of an audience likes it more than the critics kind of person. So the critics are like the Fed or the short end of the curve. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, I gave the movie like a 64, which is pretty much, I think, around what Rotten Tomatoes has it. Like, it was... I'll give Jordan Peele this much. I definitely want to see his more movies from him, and I will see more movies from him. This was you got to give him points for originality. This was not so a cookie cutter he, movie. He's going to get the ben- benefit of that out probably for another one or two movies because Get Out was so great. I just and, hope he doesn't turn into M. Shyamalan. Oh, that's right. He was the yes. He was the one hit wonder. He bought Amazon at the IPO and flipped it into GE. Ready? <laughs> right. All right. So let's get let's get back to business. So there was an article that. Just 561 new hedge funds were launched in 2018, which is the lowest number since 2000. And in the first 11 months of 2018, hedge fund portfolios run by institutional investors delivered average returns of just 1.6%, well below expectations of 7.2%, according to a survey of 425 respondents by Deutsche Bank. Why does the FT get to spell percent P-E-R space C-E-N-T? Because it's British. Yeah, but why do they get to do that? Can we all agree? Do you know that today used to be T-O space D-A-Y? I did not know that. Did you know, based on some of the YouTube videos that my children watch, that they actually call Z in Britain Z? I did know that. You d- Why do they do that? I don't get it. My kids are trying to learn the ABCs on a YouTube video, and they're pronouncing Z-Z. Anyway, there's a lot of things that British people say that are way cooler than us. But anyway. The meaty part of this article was that we've always heard anecdotes that younger funds outperform better. And they said that emerging hedge funds with a record of less than two years have delivered annualized returns of 7.2% compared with 4.8% for industry average. Which, and the funny thing is, is the majority of the institutional investors would much rather go with their more mature peers than invest in the emerging funds, which is one of the reasons that Swenson at Yale has done so well, because he typically has invested in those up-and-coming funds over the years. And those are the ones that you can actually find that don't have as big of an asset base. And that's one of the reasons that... And typically, 
they're smaller too, so that managers are probably hungrier because they they can't just live off that two percent anymore. They they want to prove themselves. So I it definitely makes sense. Obviously, when you're choosing from a field of eleven thousand or whatever it is, picking the newest emerging ones is difficult because there's so many to choose from. But somebody just tweeted that the Apple Card has no fees, no late fees, no international fees, no fees at all. How is that possible? Do you have to have like a 750 credit score to get access to this? I'm just impressed that you're able to follow Twitter and podcasts at the same time. Multi-talented. All right. So did you see this chart? So Jim O'Shaughnessy had a great tweet thread about how people fall for complexity. And then funnily enough, like the day, a day later, I saw Daryl Morey tweet a really cool chart that I think I disagree with. So it's like a fork at the road type chart with yes. one hour saying simple but wrong and one hour saying complex but right. And everybody is going to the simple but wrong. I actually think this is backwards. I've also I've thought the same thing about this one. There's a couple variations of this. And I, yeah, I think it should be... Although I think the, it depends It depends in what field because in certain fields, this might be right. Yes. But for most people, especially in finance, complex it, yeah, but finance, wrong this is, yeah. is much more taken than simple but right, I would say. I totally agree. Okay. So Eric Baltrun has tweeted, since news broke of VOO cutting its expense ratio to, to one basis point lower than IVV, it took in $4.3 billion. I don't get it. Is there just an unlimited well of money? Where is this money coming from? <laughs> I don't, it's probably cash on the sidelines. I, if I had to guess. I, I don't think it's financial advisors that are moving this quickly. It's got to be institutions, I would imagine. But smaller um, ones, right? Because larger institutions probably just do direct indexing for one basis point. Well, here's the thing. If they, if these ETFs can now do it for this low of fees, does it even make sense to do direct indexing anymore for them? If I mean, back in the day, they would pay one, two, three, maybe four or five basis points for this stuff. And that's a, that's a huge multi-billion dollar ones. If the lower end institutions can get this for three basis points and have someone else... I just do don't get it. Every time we see a fee cut, there's more money. Like, is there just an... Un- an unlimited pile of money. I just, I don't understand. Yeah, it, it is crazy, but it happens every time. And that's why they keep doing it, which is why, again, it's more of a PR thing than anything. So um, before we get to listener questions, two quick things. One, our colleague and one of the best people I know, Tony Isola, unfortunately had his email list for his blog wiped out. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but that sucks. So if you are, if you are reading Tony's blog, A Teachable Moment, we'll link to it in the show notes so you can resubscribe. Okay. I'm 21 years old and want to start investing this Wait, year. Wait, hold, hold on, hold on. One last thing. <laughs> you and I went to a blackjack table yes. in Milwaukee. Okay. And you do not curse. So when you were when you had a bad loss, you said, "Did you say bless it?" <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to get thrown off the table. <laughs> and when we were pressing our bets, Wait, you we said, "You think I don't curse?" Well, not as much as a New Yorker. Yeah. Yes. Uh, when we were pressing our bets, we said "druck it." Yes, I was trying. So, and then we both left with zero chips. Well, getting back to the Kahneman stuff about behavior, the blackjack table is a perfect, like, little petri dish for human behavior because there's always the idea that, well, when you start losing, well, I'll just wait till I make all my chips back and break even. <laughs> and the other thing is like pressing your bets. So, we figured out when you start to lose, you lower your bets. When I start to lose, I increase my bets. And no, I don't know. Or no, sorry, it's the other way around. I'm a, yeah. I'm a momentum blackjack player, so yeah. when I start to win, I start increasing my bets, and yes. when I lose, I you're decrease. You're doing it right. The opposite. You're doing. You know, it's funny. You're doing it right. I'm doing it wrong. But we both lost money. We both lost money. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that may have had more to do with Jack Daniels than anything. But all right, yes, it's a very it, and it's the ultimate card game there is, as far as I'm concerned. 
All right. We wait a good time in Milwaukee. 21 years old. I want to start investing this year to take advantage of compound interest. I'm unsure of which account type I should be purchasing them from. I'm eligible to contribute in a Roth IRA. Would it be better for me to just invest in a taxable account for better long-term returns over the Roth IRA? Or So this is kind of yes. asking, what's the hierarchy of retirement accounts? The way that I view this is, here's the, here's the list. Always invest first in the 401k if you get a match, or 403b, whatever it is, 457. If you get a match, it doesn't matter what your investment options are. Take that match, you're getting 100% return right away. If you don't like your investment options, they're too expensive, there's not enough, then go to your IRA, and then you go back to the 401k because you want to take advantage of those tax deferrals, then you move on to the taxable account. That's my sort of, and that's missing 529s, HSAs, all that stuff. This is just retirement-wise. How much time did you guys put into studying for the CFA? Do you think it was more or less than the average? Did it take more than one try to pass each exam? And do you think it's worth it to invest the time and energy as a young person today? What do you think? How many hours did you put in? I put in like the max. I was studying literally every single night and weekend because I had no industry experience. I knew literally nothing. So for me, the CFA gave me like a framework to even think about anything. Because again, it was all brand new to me. So I definitely put in a ton of hours. I think they say the average is about 300 per exam, which is a lot. And I think I, I calculated it back at the envelope afterwards. And I, that's probably what I did for each exam. It's okay. about 300. I do think, I talked to a group of college students a couple weeks ago. And anytime I talk to these people, they ask, should I get my MBA or CFA or CFP? I think for most people, there's probably going to be more a better career path in the CFP route because I just think there's so many boomers who are going to need help in the coming years. And millennials too, and with their finances, that a CFP would probably you'll probably have a better job finding work. But I still think the CFA, if you want to be in portfolio management, it's hard to go wrong there because it's much much less expensive than an MBA. You can do it on your own study time. I think it still holds a lot of cachet in the industry. And a lot of places, frankly, want you to have the CFA or at least be going down that road to even get an interview. So yeah. it, it, it's kind of a career. It depends where you are in your career and how hard it is for you to get the job you want, I suppose. Yeah. I, if you want to be an analyst, then it's almost like you have to do it. Unless you have, yeah. unless you have like industry connections, table stakes. All right, uh, recommendations. Okay, finished catastrophe. It was the final season, and I think this is just about the perfect show for the streaming era because it was four seasons. Each season was only six episodes apiece, and they were only about a half hour at a time. So you can plow through this quick, and we did every time it came out, and. It was so short that it left you wanting more. Which I thought I thought this was the worst season of them all, but it was still very much worth watching. Probably, I like the way they tied it up. But and I think the the two of them, Rob and Sharon, who I think they both co-write the show and are co-stars, are they're hilarious. Great. Yeah, they're great. I think Sharon is really funny, and I just think it's a great show, easy to binge, really quick. The British British people in British entertainment has it figured out doing six episode seasons. I mentioned this before, but. Oh, it's Bodyguard. Just, it's perfect. Yes, yeah, Bodyguard. Yeah. yeah, it's perfect. The new Ricky Gervais one I'm just starting. I'll give a review on that in a couple weeks when I finish it. Six six episodes is great. Uh, we watched Green Book. It's kind of hard to say much about this one because it won Best Picture, so I'm not exactly like a groundbreaking review here, but it was good. Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali were great in it together. I enjoyed it. And I'm going to give you a book recommendation for the week. Just This is you personally, Michael. <laughs> It's called The Checklist Manifesto. Oh, my God. By Atul Gawande. Have you read this? <laughs> no, but I could definitely use one. Okay. It shows how using checklists can help you make better decisions because in the last week, twice now, we've gone through podcasts and you forgot to hit the record button or you plugged in your mic into the wrong cord. <laughs> so I want to give you a checklist that you go through like an airline pilot every time we do a podcast. Okay. Fair. So you know what's a good Twitter account? 
Rex Chapman. Blocker charge? Yeah. Is he an NBA analyst now? I know he played in the NBA and was a good college I'm, player. I'm sure he is. Uh, speaking of NBA analysts, on the way home from Milwaukee, so I saw Steve Novak, former three-point stud from the New York Knicks, and he's 6'10". I had no idea he was that big, but he sat down next to me at Starbucks and was very friendly. We chatted for quite a while before he got on a plane to, Mo- to Oklahoma City. And you know what? I tried to let him off the hook. Like, Did you geek out like a fan? Well, no. I just said, I loved you on the Knicks, blah, blah, blah. And I tried to stop like twice just to not bother him, but he kept going. So we spoke for like 15 minutes before his flight. That was fun. All right. I read a book. So I've been on a fiction kick, and I haven't read fiction in a long time, but, but Charlie Bellella gave me two great recommendations. The one that I read last week was Where the Crawdads Sing. And this is perfect for a movie. And I Googled it, and sure enough, it is going to be a movie. And I feel like it's like a can't miss. It's like a really easy story to tell. There's a courtroom drama scene, which is perfect. And that's all pretty much all I got. So thank you for listening. AnimalSpiritsPod at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye.